Women's health needs, and especially our hormonal needs, are finally receiving the attention we've deserved for years. And Hormone Harmony, a new sponsor of SelfWork, rates as one of the top five hormonal supplement companies out there. If you're a young woman struggling with that week before your period when moods can be all over the place, and I certainly don't miss that, or older when you're so glad menopause is here, but if you're like me, you sometimes stare at yourself in the mirror and ask, where did I go? Hormone Harmony has become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media, and a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Basically, if you breathe in and out slowly twice, that's the amount of time it takes for one more woman to understand she can reach out for help, no matter what her age, through Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code SELFWORK at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code SELFWORK for 15% off today. This is SELFWORK and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At SELFWORK, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret. And self-work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self-work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I started self-work more than four years ago now to try to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're curious and you want answers, maybe you're having a relationship problem that you're struggling with, but also to those of you who don't really understand therapy, might not think you'd ever darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough to listen to a podcast like Self Work. So welcome now in 2021 to all of you. You know, well, sometimes when I pick a subject for self-work, I have to dig pretty deep to find information about it or research that I can bring that will add clarity or give you what's new out there on the subject. This wasn't the case with the topic for today, which is people-pleasing. There are YouTube videos galore in all kinds of sources. There are lists of what to do's and what not to do anymore's. I did find someone who brought up some really good things about people-pleasing that we shouldn't forget. Most everyone agreed on how it starts, but there were other points made, so I'll focus on all of that. How you become a people pleaser, what keeps you a people pleaser, and I also want to talk about some issues in therapy, briefly, that are very specific to those who struggle with people pleasing that therapists and patients need to pay attention to, to try not to reenact people pleasing with your therapist. The listener email today was fascinating to me as we hear this listener figure out that she'd been blamed by her siblings for not being a good enough mom to them. Now, she was their sister. You can already hear the confusion. But they'd seen her blamed for everything by her parent. It's called scapegoating. Her healing began as she let go of that old dynamic. And she asks me if this dynamic might be correlated with perfectly hidden depression. So welcome to Self-Work. And welcome to 2021. I'm glad you're here in this episode, once again sponsored by BetterHelp, as we talk about people-pleasing. We're talking about people-pleasing today, and there was a lot of agreement about how people-pleasers are created. 
They're usually kids whose relationship with their parent or parents was characterized by that parent, sometimes being loving and tuned in, but at other times, definitely not. This kind of confusion between something being there and then suddenly not being there causes what's termed an anxious or insecure attachment to that parent. Attachment just meaning the way you connect, the way you experience the relationship. So the child feels the need to try to please the parent so that abandonment won't occur, except that doesn't work. Sadly, the child doesn't know what else to do, keeps trying, and then develops that style of connecting with everyone in their world. One article also brought up that certain cultures and environments teach that a child's primary job is to please. Somewhat synergistically, this week I actually heard an interview on a podcast. The interview was with an American citizen who's lived in China since 1991. In fact, she's touted as the Oprah of China. And she was talking to the reporter about the Chinese response to the pandemic as being very different than here in the U.S. Because, from birth, many Chinese children are taught that their focus needs to be on the greater good and to never dishonor the parents. Politics aside, this is an interesting note, I think, that certain cultures call for that kind of obedience. Quite differently, their families call enmeshed families that have this same principle. They're families whose ties demand a lack of individuation from the family. You don't leave these families easily. They teach you things like, family is all you need in life. So the point here is that people-pleasing can be learned in those kinds of families as well. If you want to know more about enmeshment, I actually have a very early podcast on it, Podcast 62, and I'll have that link in the show notes. But let's go through nine things that people-pleasers tend to do so you can check it off and see if you're one of them. And I'll add my two bits, as I always do, from other articles in my own experience. But these nine points were organized by Amy Morin in Psychology Today, so I want to give her credit. Here we go. Number one is you pretend to agree with everyone. And to me, pretend is the important word here. You may not know exactly how you feel, but any kind of dissent on your part is avoided. You kind of put on your nice face. It can be an okay social skill and handy, but also if you do it too much, problematic. One patient told me very painfully that no one ever seemed to remember her when she saw them again. They remember my husband, but not me. We wondered together if that was because she rarely voiced her own opinion. So actually, she was kind of invisible. But basically, people-pleasers don't have a strong connection with their inner selves. They feel cut off from a sense of self or the I of who you are. And that can be very lonely. Number two, you feel responsible for how other people feel. You know, taking responsibility for your impact on others is healthy. That means you're... You've got integrity, your understanding that sometimes you could have a positive impact or a negative impact. But saying to yourself things like, I must have done something to make them feel this way, you're carrying that too far. You're taking responsibility for something you have no control over, and that's the way other people feel. So it's a real kind of helpless situation. Number three is you apologize often. I call this always taking a subservient or one-down position. In fact, I have worked with many people who constantly say they're sorry, and they'll recognize they do, but they don't know how to change that habit. It comes out of their mouth just, well, I'm sorry, but like they can't claim their position because it might cause conflict with others. But there's an interesting twist to this that we'll get to in just a second. Number four is you feel burdened by the things you have to do. 
If you're a people pleaser, there's a good chance your schedule is filled with activities that you think other people want you to do or need you to do. And that's tied into the next trait, number five, you can't say no. So actually, you can begin to feel resentful because people can take advantage of this easily. But because you fear rejection and that abandonment, remember the attachment issue we talked about before? Then you keep on saying yes. I've also seen that anger expressed very passively, passive aggression, basically, which can be very damaging to everyone around because you can sense the aggression. But the person has this smile on their face and seems to be being nice. So some of these are beginning to build a picture for you about, you know, you apologize and you feel like you have to do everything that other people want you to do because you fear rejection, but you're getting more angry and more angry. Number six is you feel uncomfortable if someone is angry at you and you don't understand it. Why would they be mad? You do for them all the time. But, you know, I've also seen and other articles talked about this as well. People pleasers can burst into anger suddenly and explosively. It's as if they hold it and hold it until it roars out of them. They hate when this happens and apologize profusely for it, even shame themselves for it. But here's the radical change that can happen. You're someone who's constantly taking a subservient, I'm sorry position, and then you jump into dominance, if only for a moment. Basically, you struggle to regulate your emotions around anger. Either you're being passive or you swing into aggression or passive aggression. But basically, your emotions around anger, around fear, are very, very confusing and kind of all over the place. Number seven is you act like the people around you. I had to laugh when I saw this because I remember my best friend in the eighth grade, we had this thing called Teen Town. I had the habit of copying the people around me who were dancing around me. And one time she said, Morris, stop doing that. People can tell what you're doing. But basically, people who are people pleasers are kind of like a chameleon. You change your colors to fit in with the colors of those around you. So again, there's that lack of I, lack of self. Number eight, you need praise to feel good, and you like feeling indispensable. Now, we all like praise, right? Praise usually feels good, unless you don't like attention. The author of this article says, and I'm quoting her, people pleasers depend on validation. If your self-worth rests entirely on what others think about you, you'll only feel good when others shower you with compliments. But the indispensable part is more when you hear, you know, I just don't know what we'd do without you. My experience also says, however, that that praise still doesn't fix your fear of disappointing them or of never being enough. You may then turn to control your relationship where you keep that indispensability in place. It helps you feel unrejectable. Number nine is you don't admit when your own feelings are hurt. And I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Again, you're kind of scared to reveal who you are. Now, again, these are extreme traits. And remember, people-pleasing, just like everything else, is going to be on a spectrum. But extreme people-pleasers aren't comfortable talking about their own disappointment. Now, this does kind of sound like perfectly in depression, does it? And I think it's close in that there can be a lack of language to even voice those feelings. It's too scary to take that risk, or you may simply not know how. Now, first, let's talk a little bit about What skills do people-pleasers have? I mean, is there a good side to people-pleasing? Sure there is. And a woman named Ann Stoneson, who has a blog called Labyrinth Healing, 
wants us to know and recognize that people pleasers can take the temperature of a room that can kind of tune into how a situation feels. They're good at blending with the group, which can be a skill. They're pretty good at intuiting what other people think, feel, or need in a situation. They're good at caring for others, anticipating needs. And again, that indispensability, you know, they can be counted on. But you have to watch for that resentment in yourself or in others. And they also have a very strong work ethic. So there are things that are positives about people pleasers. We're going to talk about how you healed. You know, I always talk about what you can do about it. Let's hear again today about better helps offer to you, which especially in a new year might come in incredibly handy, especially after the year we have had and perhaps the year we face. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of SelfWork for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone, and I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast, Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe better help is your next step. I found a woman named Anique, and her blog is Keeping It Real with Anique, who actually says there's a people-pleasing syndrome, and I saw that some other places too. I thought that was interesting. Again, this is her organization and my two bits. First, you practice saying no. When you practice this, don't legitimize the no with all the reasons why you're saying no. I had someone once tell me that it always felt as if he had to offer a laundry list of why he couldn't do something that was asked of him. He'd say, I know I sound like I want some kind of sympathy, but it's not that. I just feel so insecure about saying no that I automatically feel the need to justify the no. And what that means is you'll say, gosh, I'm sorry I can't do that because I have to take my friend to her doctor's appointment and I need to pick up the cleaning and I need to. And you just tell them everything that's on your list instead of just saying, I'm so sorry. I'm really busy this afternoon. I can't do it. So just be firm and kindly say no, but please ask me next time. Number two. 
stop offering advice or doing things unless you're specifically asked to do them. Again, that ability to tune in is a people-pleasing positive, right? And it might be something you really enjoy doing where you anticipate what other people want or need. It makes you feel good. Maybe your entire sense of worth is based on it. It's a sense of intuition, and you're very accustomed to absorbing or tuning into others. And you can be right on target. When you don't do that, when you stop offering advice or you don't look quite as hard for what you could do, you might even tell yourself that's selfish. But again, really what you have to do is deal with the fear of not being indispensable and that you'll be replaced or rejected if you don't keep up this steady barrage of kindness and generosity and being available. We're talking extremes here. Anik points out, if someone is venting to you, instead of offering advice, just validate their feelings, but don't take on the job of fixing their problem. I've often said to my own patients who tend to want me to solve their problems for them or get very engaged, I'll talk with them about it for a while and then I'll say, I know you'll find your solution to this. I've seen you do it before. But a people pleaser would walk away and then wonder, but will they ever reach out to me again? Now, like we said, there are going to be people in your world who unintentionally or intentionally take advantage of this trait. For example, they might say, oh, mom will always go along until mom doesn't. And that can change things for sure. Number three is turn to internal reassurance. What does this mean? You want to remind yourself about your own positive qualities instead of waiting for others to do it. Internal reassurance is more like internal self-soothing. You can tell yourself what you think are your strengths. You can reflect on your day and give yourself positive feedback. Again, we're trying to modify this dependence on others for you to feel okay. Now, this is not a simple thing to do. When your radar has been totally focused on what others need from you, creating your own list of desires for your own life can be daunting. It actually can also help often to go to a therapist for some help with this because you truly cannot know how to do it. Number four is stop apologizing. (laughs) Work hard to stop repeating, well, I'm sorry. Even though you may mean well, the words demonstrate a lack of confidence. Now, obviously, if you have remorse about something and you're really sorry, then you want to apologize. But some people say it constantly. And number five, is do something for yourself. Instead of waiting or expecting other people to do nice things for you, just do something nice for yourself. Put yourself first. Treat yourself to something that pleases you. That's not selfish. That's self-care. But how can being a people pleaser affect the therapeutic process? Just being in a relationship where your role is to receive, not to give, can be very hard. And that's what your role is in therapy. It is not a give-and-take relationship. The energy goes one way. Your therapist isn't your friend, as we talked about last time. And if a therapist themselves doesn't have adequate boundaries, then a people-pleaser can choose to not reveal as much and unconsciously try to become the giver. Maybe they ask questions that are more personal than is appropriate. For example, maybe a patient would say, or you would say, So how do you handle this with your own children, or what are you doing for the holidays? You're trying to establish yourself as a giver. You're trying to understand the therapist. 
So a therapist has to see this and gently point out the dynamic. And then your therapist and you can wonder together how you can allow yourself to feel more comfortable in a therapeutic relationship and also confront your own instinct to kind of turn the tables. Also, if there's anger or disappointment in therapy or if a therapist is missing the boat somehow, it's hard for you maybe to be assertive about that. Or, as we were saying, you could have a sudden bout of rage. Now, all of that can be discussed as part of the basic insecurity that's part of that attachment issue. You can say, I don't know how to talk to you about being disappointed. I've never done it. Therapy is a place you can practice that skill. So if you're a people pleaser and you go into therapy, then you can recognize this in yourself. And you therapists out there, you've got to try to recognize when you have a people pleaser as a patient and really watch for that turning the tables. As I said earlier in the intro, the listener email to me was very, very poignant and fascinating. Let's hear from her. Hey, Dr. Margaret. I had a quick question about if there was any correlations between narcissistic families and the scapegoat role and your hidden depression. I noticed for myself that I probably had depression I couldn't name for most of my life. And when my siblings started calling me up and telling me that I was the reason for their bad feelings because I had been an inadequate mother figure and I didn't do a good enough job raising them, it stopped me in my tracks and I realized suddenly, I'm your sister. (laughs) Why am I in this role? Why are you mad at me? And I started researching and realized like, hey, I think I got the scapegoat role in my narcissistic family. And as I let the expectations of my family go, I found I was no longer waking up in the morning with this feeling of being inadequate and having to fulfill everybody else's needs because my value on the earth was determined by that. And my depression lifted and my day-to-day self came out and my feelings came out and I was able to pursue things that I had put aside up until that point for me because I didn't think that I deserved to be happy. Thanks. This woman had obviously done her homework and done some research on what's called narcissistic families. And those are families where there's a lot of control and manipulation within the family. So as I went looking for research myself, I found an article by Randy Fine, and sure enough, I had been on her podcast as a guest. And I'll include that link in your show notes. It's called Roles of Children in Narcissistic Families, and her podcast is called A Fine Time for Healing. I'll have that link too. She's a really nice very well-spoken person. She has a book that she's written on narcissism, and that'll be in the show notes as well. So she eloquently describes the three major roles within narcissistic families, roles that children play. You can think of them as labels as well. There's the golden child, the scapegoat, and the invisible child. The scapegoat child is the most truthful, well-meaning, personally sacrificing member of the family, but she's also constantly getting hurt. She remains authentic no matter how many times she's used and abused by her parent. The narcissistic parent sees this child as having no needs of her own, although she's expected to do the caring. So that's the connection between her siblings believing she was supposed to do the caring that the parents were actually supposed to do. 
A scapegoat's entire childhood is spent trying to live up to the expectations of the parent, which proves futile. She's never good enough. So what about the question of how all this is connected to perfectly hidden depression, or is it? My thoughts at this juncture, even though I keep learning more and more, have certainly been influenced by the people that I've either seen personally or interviewed for the book. That book is called Perfectly Hidden Depression. If I look at their histories, I hear a mixture of golden children, invisible children, and scapegoats, all who began using the strategy of trying to be perfect, hiding the pain they felt very carefully, and then that hiding became an unconscious or automatic strategy. It might seem on the surface that it would be the golden child who was very enmeshed with the parent that might lead to more of this kind of strategy, perfectly hidden depression. But I've also worked with people who were screamed at that they'd amount to absolutely nothing. So for clarity, I emailed Randy herself, meaning, is there a direct role between being a golden child, an invisible child, or a scapegoat to developing a strategy to kind of go underground with your emotions? And here's what she says. Children, no matter the role they play, respond differently to the confusing emotional abuse experienced in the turbulent environment of their narcissistic homes. Some vow to never trust or be vulnerable again. Some become perpetrators themselves. Some become people pleasers, believing they have to earn love and acceptance to get it. In every case, lacking healthy coping strategies and under constant duress, feelings are repressed and even dissociated from. I thought that was very eloquently put. Thank you, Randy. But I want to end with this. There are a lot of theories out there about what happens in dysfunctional families or narcissistic families. There are theories about attachment, theories about narcissism, theories about individuation, and then my own theory about the development of a strategy to cope and emotionally survive in your family. To me, it doesn't matter what label you put on it, if that label is helpful to you, to begin to undo the damage done where you can live more openly, find more self-compassion and acceptance, and move ahead. I think the labels can be very helpful. They give you a way of looking back at your past and thinking, well, that explains a lot. But again, just choose the one that makes sense to you. I had a supervisor years ago tell me, Margaret, all these theories are just theories. That was helpful to me to think I didn't have to pick the right theory to believe in because the most important thing is, Is it helpful to you? Thank you so very much for being here and welcoming 2021 with me here on Self Work. I think I said when I was talking about the book Perfectly Hidden Depression in the <laughs> in the last podcast, I said it was trudging along. <laughs> I got kind of tickled at that when I heard it. It's like, why did I use such a negative word? <laughs> I would say more positively, it's chugging along this week. Maybe I was uh, not doing too well last time myself. It's got 152 reviews or ratings right now on Amazon, and I could not be more grateful to those of you who've left a rating or review. Again, the book is for anyone whose life needs to be in strict control where you really struggle to talk about your painful emotions or memories from your past, and you may develop a fairly perfect-looking external world, and the book has over 60 exercises to help you. I was very complimented by a podcast interviewer that I had a couple of weeks ago. He's a therapist, and he said, now, I guess I'm bragging on myself, but he said, 
that he had never encountered a book that was quite as good a balance between understanding and giving insight as well as looking at the cause of something and then moving ahead and giving exercises. Some books are, tend to be more conceptual. Some books tend to be more workbook-oriented. And some people never even talk about the why. They just want to help you change it. So I was very flattered because that's exactly what I tried to do in the book, to give you a real mixture of experiences. Anyway, that's Perfectly Hidden Depression. It's available everywhere you buy books. You can also reach out to me at my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. If you subscribe there, you'll get a weekly newsletter that includes my blog post, this podcast, and anything else that's going on. I had an article do extremely well in Psychology Today a couple of weeks ago. And you know what? I'll actually include that link. You might be interested in it. It's about my mother's prescription drug abuse and her struggle with OCD and anxiety. You also can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com or use the SpeakPipe feature that's in your show notes or on my website to leave me a message via your voice so I can actually hear you. I love to hear from all of you. It really gives me a sense of who you are. I was delighted that I had a download from Greenland. (laughs) That was this huge country that I didn't have any downloads in, and somebody started listening in from Greenland. So welcome, Greenland. (laughs) I have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash group slash self-work, and I'd love to have you there. We're a very diverse group from all over the world, and we give friendship and support, so I'd love to have you there as well. I also am over on Instagram and try to include things on Instagram that I think will be fulfilling or make you think, or they're things that make me think, so I'm simply sharing them with you. Again, thank you very much for being here. Take very good care, and please keep safe. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.